I just feel like if you're handsome, probably some interesting things have happened to you. <laughs> In Shakespeare criticism, famously Northrop Fry. Uh, Tom Holland, Spider-Man! Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, throwing some very ugly pottery in San Francisco. And I'm James Earl, slow burn boring in Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and this month we're reading Happy Place by Emily Henry. As a reminder, we will have lots of spoilers in this discussion where we talk about our happy place, these characters' happy places, and our experiences with pottery, both in Milan as well as in San Francisco, only one of which is featured in this book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not Milan. No. <laughs> we can dive into that when we go into the summary a little bit so people know where we're located in this book and what our happy places are or what our potential happy places are. Right. What what constitutes a happy place? And will our characters find it by the end? And can a happy place be a person? <laughs> I think you've already given the spoilers. <laughs> but I think you you read a book like this, you know you know how it's going to end. Yeah. But in case we don't know how it's going to end, just give us a full-on summary. I think it's your turn to do this one. I'll count you in. Yeah, I just got to stretch. You know, I spent all that time doing that pottery, full body workout. Right. I feel like our actual tradition here for this summary is one of us tries really hard to do a summary in a minute, and then the other one just fills in the things that the person didn't say. So I'm, I'm ready for my role in this. Great. I love it. It's a collaborative art form. Yeah. All right. Three, two, one. Okay, so we have three best friends in college. There is our main character, Harriet, um, who wants to become a surgeon. And there is Sabrina, who is a Blair Waldorf type, Upper East Side sort of rich girl. And then there is Cleo, who is like a crunchy wannabe farmer lesbian. And so they all become best friends in their college dorm. And then also, while this happens, they become friends with two dudes at the college, both of which who end up dating two of the girls in the group. They don't date the crunchy lesbian. Harriet ends up with Wynn, who is from Montana and is a wannabe furniture artist, designer. And before the book starts, they've been engaged. Um, he had followed her to her residency in San Francisco, but the long distance was too hard between San Francisco and Montana, so they broke up. But none of their friends know that. So they're all reuniting for a summer trip, and they have to pretend that they're still together because it is their other two friends' wedding that weekend. What's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. We got the premise. And I think you set up that there's just a whole bunch of tropes going on, like the we broke up, but we have to do this thing together trope. What is, does that have an official name? Is that a thing? There is the, the fake relationship trope, but I can't think of the one when you've already dated. The fake relationship trope I'm thinking about is like when Mulder and Scully pretend to be a married couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, <laughs> But they're not they're not dating, they just have tension. Yeah. Versus these two are pretending they're still in a relationship. Yeah. The the Christmas book we read too was also uh we have to pretend to be together. Mm -hmm. But I feel like there's the I don't know, I gotta think of where I've seen this before, where people are not together anymore and then have to do something really meaningful together. Like they have to like go on one more adventure and they I feel okay, I saw a movie with like Tiffany Haddish and somebody where they broke up and then they were in a car together and they actually had to run over a biker and they get swept up into this world of <laughs> underground drug sales and stuff like this because the person they ran over was a mule or I don't know what happened. Wow! So it's like they broke up and then they have to do something together. And I feel like that's what's going on in this book. Yeah, so they can fall back in love. Yeah, 
And there's also a hint of an enemies to lovers thing because they begin this. They're not even talking to each other. They, she's got his number blocked. Mm-hmm. And then they have to pretend like they like each other. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how pronounced the pretending on behalf of others theme was going to be throughout the entire novel. Yeah. Like it sets it up where it's just the two of us are pretending to make this trip better for everyone else. And then it turns out that everyone's pretending. And in fact, the the group of six, the reason that their friendship is imploding is because they're all trying to assume what the other people want and need and are like actually like not giving it to each other. Right. And so they're all going to this happy place and what they think everybody wants is for it to be exactly the same as it was. Like they're going to participate in their same rituals and so they fall into the same characters that they were when they were in college. And it's not necessarily the person that they are now. And so part of that is this foil relationship between Harriet and Sabrina in particular, where Sabrina is the planner who holds everybody together with the house and all of these rituals and all that. She's holding on too tight by having special gifts for everybody and really pressuring them into even going that weekend. We learn throughout this that everybody pushed back against this weekend, um, and she pulled the we're getting marriage card when she needed to to manipulate everybody into going and Harriet is constitutionally the opposite of that where she does not hold on because she wants to be accommodating to everybody and so she just sort of lets this weekend like run over her because she thinks that's what this group of people needs from her and she like learned throughout that this is not what this group of people actually need from her they need her to care and to show that she cares yeah And of course, the books draws a very clear line between everyone's childhood trauma and then like how they currently think they can be lovable. Yeah. For Harriet, it's that her mother lived a very small life that she didn't want. Right. Because she got pregnant out of wedlock with Harriet's older sister, who was like very difficult. And her parents were so happy when Harriet was like made herself small, but also in interest of like becoming something that's like very traditionally successful, like a surgeon. And so she's like, I need to make myself as small emotionally as possible, as least needy as possible, but as most successful as possible. And then that is how I will be lovable because that is what my parents need. And so that's what I'm going to try to do for my friends as well. And then we see like Wynn's whole childhood is like, yes, he had like a really supportive, loving family, but he had like brilliant older sisters who were going to like change the world. And he was just like a handsome goofball. And once people got to know him, they just were like, oh, you have nothing to offer. And that was his constant fear is that the more that Harriet got to know him, the more she wouldn't care about him anymore. Mm -hmm. Which then of course hit straight with Harriet being like, I'm making myself small, I'll do whatever you want. But it seems like she doesn't care. Yeah. And then he's like, I just need someone to care to show me that they care. Yeah, slow burn boring (laughs) versus slow burn hot. (laughs) Would you rather be slow burn boring or slow burn hot? Uh, I think obviously slow burn hot, right? <laughs> what's what's the benefit of why, why would one choose slow burn boring? Just so you make really good first impressions and I feel like that could that could deliver you to like some sort of like, you know, celebrity status very quickly. Yeah. Like you would just be like friends with everyone. I mean, I think he underestimates how important his business degree is, for example. I feel like that's also related. Like business degrees, first impressions, like these are actual skill sets that can make you a ton of money. Mm-hmm. He was making like $15,000 tables by the end. Right. <laughs> and like making connections with like local Wyoming like businessmen. There, there's a benefit there. Maybe it's I've never met what I find to be a truly boring person. 
I just feel like if you're handsome, probably some interesting things have happened to you. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I mean, now I'm going to go out into the world and test this hypothesis and just, like, find... I I thought you were going to be like, I'm going to go out in the world, and in one, I'm going to, like, mess up my hair, make sure it looks like bedhead, and the other one, I'm going to, like, pomade it, and we'll see how much more successful I am. (laughs) How interesting my day is. Yeah. Yeah, which day ends with more stories. Exactly. But yeah, so, like, childhood drama. Yeah. I mean, this book was really good at having that kind of cohesiveness to the character arcs. To the point where it was, yeah, it was like a little on the nose with these linear lines between trauma and characteristics and the way that they deal with friendships and so on. There was like a scene at the end where Harriet is explaining Sabrina's trauma to the group and and to Sabrina's own fiance and being like, well, you know, she went through all of these divorces. Yeah. And, you know, that means that she's looking for someone who will fight for her instead of just like avoiding it and moving on to the next person. And her fiance's like, what? (laughs) Really spells it out. That scene and really the ending in particular pulled together a lot of the themes of the novel where this is a very particular time in everybody's life when they're becoming somebody new post-college and they're like really stepping into who they're going to be and that new person and that new life needs to try to reconcile the friendships that were important to them and so Sabrina like is choosing to get married almost out of fear that she's losing a sense of self that she once had like she was anti-marriage for so long and then now she's for it, but really it seems like she's for it through a lot of the novel simply because she's trying to hold on to a past that doesn't exist anymore. But that scene is paralleling Wynne and Harriet's that there is a way where you can commit to those friendships and still find out who you are in the world. And so they, like, both of them are just sort of agreeing to do that. And so by explaining Sabrina's trauma to Parth, She's explaining how one can accept her for who she is and, like, allow that person to grow out of that. They are experiencing the world in this particular way. They need this particular thing because of their past traumas. And here's how you can be that person and fight for her and, like, each of you become the person that you're going to be together by, like, committing to this, like, we're going to make our new worlds together. And that's like what Harriet and Wynne sort of decide to do as well. And to be more open with each other about like your insecurities. Yeah. There is like the thing where everyone's hiding stuff from each other. And that actually is what's causing a division is like everyone's like, why are we feeling separate from each other? And it's because everyone is keeping secrets. Like Wynne signed up for an apprenticeship to learn how to make furniture in San Francisco and didn't tell Harriet. <laughs> He's like, if it was bad, I didn't want to tell you. Right. And all the secrets are are related to them becoming somebody that they were not when they were in college. Mm-hmm. And so they realize that everybody needs everybody else to be the same person that they were in college. And so they're afraid to share it. And because they're all hiding these things, they need to sort of accept each other for the people that they're becoming, not the people that they once were. And that's the whole conclusion and really the whole book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tension in the book around no one's allowed to date friends in the group. And then we end up with two couples in the group. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone except for the lesbian. Yeah, yeah. That's the like thematic tension. Is it, it begins like that. And then so you're saying don't do this thing. It's dangerous. Both of them do the thing. And then now they're trying to hold on and survive it. Mm-hmm. Also, I was like struck by I wrote I wrote in my notes that almost all of the narrative tension is centered around the question, what's up with Wynne? Mm. Like, 
you're trying to figure out why he broke up with her. You're trying to figure out what his deal is, why he stopped talking. Like, and even at, at micro levels, like micro scenes, Wynn will act a certain way. And really the entire narrative tension is just what is Wynn up to? Why is he doing this thing? Mm-hmm. Does he actually like her? And so, yeah, it's, it's almost like a Darcy type of situation where you're like, why is this guy acting like this? And that's driving the entire novel. Right. I do hate this trope, though, where it's like he's choosing not to be with her because it's what he thinks is best. Right, right, right. I hate that trope. (laughs) Yeah. There was a new Spider-Man movie where Tom Holland keeps on telling Zendaya that he's dangerous to be around and that she shouldn't want this. And she keeps on saying, like, no, I do want this. And at the end of it, he, like, erases everybody's memory and they have to start over. And he basically unilaterally makes the decision for her not to remember their relationship together, even though she was very clear the entire movie. And we're supposed to treat this as like, he did the right thing, which was, it just was messed up. But yeah, this making a unilateral decision for the couple, because you think that that person is not capable of making the decision that they actually want for themselves. And you're like being the strong one. It is, it's like a pretty terrible trope yeah it's a really selfish decision yes and in spider-man it's also like first of all it's zendaya and then also his best friend ned yeah Yeah. (laughs) like both are like left in the dust and they both are like come find us we want to be your friend we find it worth it yes we know all the sacrifices we've made all the sacrifices and we still want to be your friend and he's like no you don't i'm gonna make a decision for you because you're not strong enough and i'm the hero uh tom holland spider-man but yeah At least in that, you're like, it gives danger. Like, knowing who Spider-Man is, it does put your life, actual life in danger. Knowing that your fiancé likes to make furniture (laughs) is, like, not, like, a death-defying or it's not going to attract death and supervillains. No, no, right. Yeah, why is he acting this way as an adult when someone who's, like, actively has said many, many times, no, I want to be with you? Right, and thinking that she's incapable of making that decision simply because she doesn't care when they cancel plans or pretends like she doesn't care when they cancel plans. This is actually really similar to another unilateral decision that's made where Sabrina, we find out, knows that they were broken up and is putting them in this uncomfortable situation to share a room together in order to make them realize that they love each other. And again, this is like just a deep distrust of people's own autonomy and their ability to process all of the elements of their life for themselves and then make the decision that's best for them. Sabrina making this decision to put everybody together, put them in the romantic bedroom and just say, I actually know better than you know what you want in your life and how to go about getting that. I mean, that one is addressed, I think. Like, they, they call her out for that being terrible. So this isn't one of those moments where something is romanticized and then never really interrogated. That one is interrogated. I think that's what's interesting to me is that, like, it's interrogated, but ultimately Sabrina is not wrong. Right. <laughs> like, everything she says where it's like, you guys belong together and you needed me to get involved because she does tell Harriet, she's like, you just are along for the ride. And she's the one who's like, no, you need to be the one who's like taking more action in your life. And I'm trying to put you in a situation where you can do that and you can show in that because that's what he needs. Right. And then they end up together at the end. Sabrina, I don't know, Sabrina ends up getting everything she wants for the end of the weekend. Gets validated. (laughs) Yeah, she does. She does. She (laughs) The most 
toxic and aggressive of the friends ends up holding everybody together. But that is her like that that is her job in the friend group is to hold it all together. It's interesting as Sabrina also, they never really address the fact that she had a crush on Wynn at the beginning of their friendship. It's just like she liked him but then stopped and started dating Parth. It's very weird. Right. And that's never really addressed either. It feels like that might have been something that it was built out but got cut in editing. But then that one like reference made it. Yeah. I mean, it could if we're going to read it sympathetically and assume it was on purpose. It might be about her initial dedication to not dating within the friend group. Why that was never pursued. But then once Wynn and Harriet break that seal, then she's like permitted to break it as well. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't want to be the one to jeopardize the cohesiveness of the group. So it's sort of similar to why she decides to get married, which is is made up because she knows that Wynn and Harry broke up. But she says, I saw your example and then I realized that we can do it. And so this could be what happened is that she didn't want to date within a friend group, but then she sees their example and then goes with Parth. I think there's another theme that was coming up in all of these like, various relationships the book is like how do you fight for someone Mm. and how do you fight with someone yeah that's that's a good point that's exactly harriet's central issue trying to figure out what is worth fighting for and what is worth fighting with or when she should stand up for herself and fight with somebody versus when she should fight for keeping somebody and that like goes for her relationship with sabrina it goes with her relationship with with win yeah that is what she's working towards the whole novel. And there's like a whole scene at the end where it's like, how do you have an ethical fight with your partner? <laughs> Let's talk about it. Yeah. Did we learn that lesson? How, how does one have an ethical fight with your partner? Uh, I think they had like a couple of notes. They were like, everyone says not to go to bed angry, but like, it's okay to take a step away as long as, you know, you've reassured your partner that you will, of course, come back. Yeah. And like, there were like other things like that. I was like, oh, this is a very interesting <laughs> Detour. It's like, have you never had a good fight with a partner before? Here's some tricks you want to try. <laughs> Here's some tips and tricks. Yeah, but like, but it, it it does emphasize the importance of like to be in something that is going to last. You have to get to the point where you can fight with someone because you will have disagreements. Mm-hmm. And also, what does it look like to fight for someone without it? looking toxic yeah and that's the interesting thing about sabrina's character is that her fighting for those friendships is coded as toxic it's like not coded as ethical even though it's justified by the ends the way that we read it is she's holding on too much she's manipulating people this is like not what friends do but she unequivocally is the one fighting to keep all those people to get like nobody's nobody is questioning how sabrina feels about them like they all know that Sabrina loves them, wants them to be together. And so they could question her motives, but they can't question like what she wants out of it. And so you're, I guess the novel is exploring how to do that in a non-toxic way, like how to do that ethically, to let people know that you're there for them, that you're going to continue to be there, that you're committed to as you change, finding out how they change and still being together. And that was one of the interesting things about their friendship from the beginning is that they all recognized that they were so wildly different. And so you kind of see that their worlds are going to go in different directions after college. The only reason why they're together is like the magic of the the lottery of the dorm that their lives like probably shouldn't intersect. And so obviously after they graduate, they're splitting apart. And how do you then like recommit based on those different travels that people are going to take in their life? Mm-hmm. One interesting thing I think that's related to this 
that I was thinking about throughout the novel is in Shakespeare criticism, famously Northrop Fry has this way of talking about Shakespeare's romantic comedies where he talks about green places, um, these green worlds in Shakespeare. So like the most famous is Art and Forest and As You Like It, but like Midsummer's Night's Dream has the the woods that they all travel into. And these are green worlds. And like the, the definition of a green world is that in the real world, there are all these problems and people can't be themselves because there's all these social pressures to not be yourself in Midsummer's Night's Dream. The characters aren't permitted to marry because the patriarchy, well, because of the patriarchy. And then when everybody escapes into the forest, the forest is this place that is like distilled desire. And so everybody is just permitted to pursue the thing that they want to pursue and like let the emotions happen and let desire happen and so in Midsummer's Night's Dream it's like this and um, As You Like It it's like this to some degree Belmont in The Merchant of Venice is like this so these are all like these green world situations and I was thinking about the house that they all visit in this book as sort of like a green world like they all have their real world that is bogged down with all of these social expectations and parents who want certain things from them and whatever but when they escape to the happy place to the house they're sort of allowed to just like pursue their desires. And in Shakespeare, and according to Northrop Fry, this is like a whole literary trope in itself, the problems of the real world can be solved in the green world, and then you can return to the real world and have it be transformed based on that like liberty that you find in the forest. And so I was thinking about this book like that, because I feel like the house is a green world where it's filled with just straight up desire. They're sitting on each other's laps in the cellar and like all these things are happening, but also they're like allowed to be angry with each other. And these are conversations that they're obviously not having over the phone. And so they're, you know, all these expectations of the real world are dropped when they get to the green world, then they pursue their desire and their anger and their frustrations. And then they can return to their real world and have it be transformed. So I think it played pretty well into that green world structure. Yeah, like a happy place is a green world or a happy place is a place where you are free to be whatever you want to be and grow and have messy emotions. And I think that also then fits in nicely of like, I don't know if when actually was Harriet's happy place until after all of this happened. Yeah. Because they weren't being vulnerable with each other. They couldn't have messy emotions with each other. But at the end, she like when she figures it out, it's like after they've gone through all of this together and she is able to be her true self with him, that is when he can become a happy place for her, a green world for her in the real world. Right. And he, in their relationship, did not feel like he was doing it, like he was following her around. And you get the sense that he did not feel like he was a real person. And so him pursuing the furniture thing, that was him trying to figure out what he wanted to be in the world. But it seems like that lacked desire. It like lacked emotion. Like he was doing this thing and becoming himself, but not in a way that had any passion to it. And so by going to the green world, he's allowed to pursue the passion as well. And then he can have both. He can be a real person who is an artist who makes things and still be attracted to Harriet and she can make pottery for his tables, I guess. Yeah. Can we take a brief detour? No, I want to take a brief detour about this. Are we going to talk about the unhappy (laughs) potter versus a happy doctor thing? 
Yes, no, absolutely. The opposite. The opposite of that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the unhappy doctor, then a happy Potter. Yeah, we need to talk about this. I, at the very end when she calls her parents and she's like, don't worry, I'll pay back all of the loans eventually. I was like, girl. That's a lot of tables. <laughs> that is, <laughs> I like don't even understand. Like also taking just generally learning how to like, as someone who took her very first pottery class in San Francisco, do you know how much that pottery class is costing me? It's over $300 and I'm not good. It's an expensive hobby. It's a very expensive hobby. You already have like, what how much in loans probably like three hundred thousand dollars in loans what you're pursuing is like an insane specialty of brain surgery for your residency there are so many options of what it means to be a doctor that is not a brain surgeon like what the hell is going on yeah no it's wild this the ending of this is is absolutely wild and it, it flies in the face of like all the experiences i have with being a person in the world too. <laughs> Like, if you spend that much time with medicine, you're going to find something that you like about it. And she does, right? She says a bunch of times that she actually likes being in the hospital and, like, cleaning up and sort of the little things that make everybody else's job easier. Like, she likes that. And she can totally be a doctor that does that mm -hmm. and, like, has that as part of the job because I've heard a lot of doctors that don't like that part of the job. And... It just feels really strange that she's going to go be a happy potter. So the other thing that this flies in the face of is that if you do something for that long, you find a passion for it in some way, I think. I don't know. I never hear anybody in high school be like, I want to be a dentist. But then you meet like nearly every dentist I've ever talked to has a real passion for dentistry. And I feel like you get there just by spending time with it. And then you end up falling in love with it because it is a path towards getting other things, too. Like, it is a job that kind of has prestige. It makes good money. And so you can, like, let that thing become your passion. And so for her just to abandon it and follow her passion to make pottery, it just is really hard to swallow it is like this weird dichotomy within the friend group too it's like there are only two things that you can be and it, it can't be like you're a professional with a hobby it's like either you're a high-powered attorney like sabrina and parth and like you're kind of controlling and intense or you're like a hippy dippy living in nature like cleo and kimmy and win and harriet at the end right the reasonable thing for her to do is be like brain surgery isn't for me like, I need to figure out, like, a different specialty within being a doctor, and then I'm going to keep doing pottery on the side. Yeah. And it's also not like if she moves to Montana, there are no doctors there, right? Like, it's not like she's like, I'm picking him, and my career can't happen there, and so I'm just going to, like, be a pottery person while I figure out my next step because I need to be closer to him. Like, doctors exist everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and, like, it sounds like she really likes the sort of physician's assistant type role, too. Like, she can do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's so many holes in why it would be better to be a happy potter than an unhappy doctor. Yeah, and I think that is, like, the one thing about, like, the happy place theme that kind of frustrated me because it's both, it's incredibly selfish, there's an element of it that is like navel gazing about what is my happy place and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Where she's like, well, I, I need to really focus on me versus like, there's nothing about her thinking about her work as a doctor where she's actually like, oh, I'm improving other people's lives and I'm like making a difference, which I think is important versus like the pottery is all about like her being Zen with herself, which is, yeah, put the air mask on yourself first. Yeah, she needs that. Right. Yeah. But it, I think that's also what really drove me a little crazy that like, 
her happy place in the end ends up being win and right. not her own passion. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is a, a, exactly my problem with it. Thanks for giving language to that. Because she is leaving a job of service to other people and being subservient to this like one aspect of herself that likes win. Yeah, it feels like an abandonment of something rather than a running to something. Yeah, I think that there's a theme in the book about like how love can make you brave. And I think it's supposed to be like, this is the brave ending. Like she's not doing what her parents wanted her to do. And so she's like learning how to be brave and follow her own heart. Mm -hmm. But I, I think she's running away. Right. It does. It feels a lot like running away, like running away from what her parents wanted her to do rather than running towards something. Yes. I don't know. This was really a hard ending to swallow. And I almost, like, couldn't accept it. Like, in my head, I don't think I coded the ending as the actual ending. I think in my head I was like, well, you know, she just needs some time to figure it out. But she'll, she'll return to medicine because this is, like, this is not something that is a reasonable <laughs> decision to make at the end here. Right. It just, it feels like, yeah, what is she going to discover is her passion, if not service in medicine. Yeah, she's going to realize that she's just by herself all the time making pottery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can't be Sabrina and hold on so tight to our vision right. of what Harriet needs to be. We just got to let her figure this out on her own and she'll return to herself. Ugh. But that's that's in a sequel. That's a sequel. It's so hard. I'm, yeah. We're just such Sabrinas. Yeah. The other thing that was a recurring theme was this idea of a cozy mystery. Yeah, that was really interesting. I like that. I actually really like that as, as a character trait of hers where the bad thing happens at the beginning and then the rest of it is just trying to figure out how to make it right by the end. And I like that as a character track. I thought that was really thematically appropriate, giving her that quality. Yeah, and like how they all like liked different sorts of books. Yeah. I think the thing about the cozy mystery, right, is it's not challenging. Right. And that was like supposed to be like part of her personality. It's like Sabrina loves horror and like people being ripped to shreds. Mm-hmm. And that's like it's an element of like, control almost of how you think about like ripping people to shreds and like the voyeuristic sort of puppet mastering that Sabrina likes to do. And then you have Harriet who's just like along for the ride. And that is a cozy mystery through and through. Right. We've talked about this before when we've done mystery books, like the Stevie Bell mystery novels about how it's a conservative genre ultimately where there is a good status quo that is disrupted. And then it's just everybody finding their way back to the happy status quo. And ultimately, that's like how this novel it functions as well, where they had Wynn and her had a good relationship, something happens, and then they spend the rest of the time just finding their way back to each mm-hmm. other. There was also, um, they brought in the, the mystery arc a bit about like the mystery of getting to know someone else. And I know we've talked about like, does someone like me or not? Is that a mystery? Like it's a little bit of a mystery novel. Like what are all the clues? Yeah, yeah. What's up with Wynn? Is the central mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was also this theme around, like, when you are in a long-term relationship with someone, is there mystery? Mm. How do you still find that cozy mystery of, like, we know at the end we're still together, but, like, what are the clues? What's the momentum that's keeping us interested on the journey? Because that was, like, a thing Wynn kept bringing up. It's like, you're going to get bored of me. You're going to get bored of me. You're going to get bored of me. Right. So how do you keep that up? Well, apparently it's by keeping secrets. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. There's always going to be mystery. If you're not telling each other everything. But no, I, <laughs> but I think the real thing is like, if you let yourselves grow 
and learn and grow from your original versions of yourself. Like that is where the mystery comes. Yeah, exactly. Right. The superficial thing is if you keep things from each other, there's going to be mystery. But the actual thing is you're always going to be changing and that change and how you're going to change and how that change is going to manifest in different parts of your life. That's always going to be a mystery. And that's why her being surprised by Wynn making the tables, like that's that's part of the mystery of Wynn. That's why he's not slow burn boring, is if you let him inhabit himself in Montana somewhere, he'll surprise you. Right. Speaking of Spider-Man, several you know minutes earlier in our conversation, what is our obsession with the multiverse? <laughs> like this comes up many times in this book about... You know, like I would I would love you in every multiverse like you might love other people. But for me, it's only you. Right. That this is the best timeline because we're together and I feel bad for all the timelines when we're not together. Yeah. Are you asking what the obsession is in this book or in culture generally right now? I think it's like in culture, right? Because we we keep on seeing multiverse everywhere. It's like in the Spider-Man movie. It's in Doctor Strange. Everything everywhere all at once. That's true. That's true. And then obviously like the current Marvel Universe era that we are in is the king multiverse saga yeah like we are in our multiverse era as a culture that's true that's true what is up with that i was thinking the cultural obsession with it i mean i've always loved a good like multiverse like star trek is and like stargate and all that kind of shit that like i love it it's like oh my god alternate version of so-and-so and they're married to so-and-so in this other alternate world does that mean they secretly love each other in this world <laughs> ah like i love those things i've always loved those things but it's always been something that's like very like science fiction like not something that is in the mainstream of a thing and i'm wondering if it's speaking more to current levels of dissatisfaction mm-hmm. and like people looking for like alternate universes or like slightly different paths forward now compared to other times Mm. is it a new version of like make america great again but from like a philosophical standpoint yeah there's also the thing about communication technology and how small the world is and how much access we have to a lot of different potentialities this time it's not like feudal era when if your dad's a baker you're going to end up a baker um and so there's all this potentiality for all of our futures and so there's anxiety that comes with that about not not having a fixed path and what if we went to school for law what if we did this like so there's all these ghost ships that are sent out into the world and it's really interesting to hypothesize about those it's also like that midnight library book that came out a couple years ago where she's a rock star then she's an olympian and it's the idea of like where do we put our energy in a world where we have this sort of limitless potential to put our energy in all sorts of different places. So this this allows us to all meditate on how there's a lot of different ghost ships that are constantly being sent out when we make any sort of decision. Mm-hmm. So it might be just our obsession and our anxiety about what is the best possible timeline and are we in it. Yeah, we have too many jams, too many jams. to pick from. Yeah, But I think what is interesting to me is this obsession of finding, like, we have anchored on the perfect timeline. Mm-hmm. Or, no, we are in the darkest timeline. Yeah. I feel like it's it's always just, like, one or, it's one or the other. <laughs> it's where we're in the best timeline, yeah. and we're together, and Harriet and Win are happy, or we're in the darkest timeline, yeah. and it's Troy Barnes from Community screaming with a pizza box. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> those are, like, the only options that we have. 
And I think when I think of ghost ships, I always think of the Cheryl Strayed essay about like deciding to have kids or not have kids. Yeah. And she talks about like these are two ghost ships that will never like meet, but they were equally happy ghost ships. Mm. And I was feeling the same way when I was watching the latest Guardians of the Galaxy, where we have like a different version of Gamora rejoining the team. Mm-hmm. And it's just like she and Quill are never gonna get together. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's okay. Like both of them are equally happy on like different routes and they acknowledge that it, on that other ghost ship they were happy and they were fun and that was beautiful yeah but they are now in another ghost ship that is equally good right i wish we just saw more of that like that was a very poignant ending to me of like all of these ghost ships are viable you can find happiness in all of them exactly harry does not need to be with with win for it, them to be to feel satisfied in the world and to feel useful and I think that's the danger of like having your happy place be a person. Yeah. If Quill's happy place is Gamora, he's fucked. The current world that we're in, he'll never be happy. Right. But at the very end, he's like, no, like that is not where my sense of self, it's not you. Like a version of you made me so happy and that was a wonderful ghost ship. Mm-hmm. But we are on another one that's equally good. Yeah. And there's other ways to be happy and find ways of being of service. Which is why you should be a doctor and not a potter. Or like an yeah, a intergalactic superhero. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, something something is service. Yeah, yeah. right. That's <laughs> <laughs> where you're gonna find meaning. It's actually so rare to find a book where that isn't the usually in novels like this. It's somebody finds a way to be of service and to feel useful and find meaning in their life. And I guess I mean maybe it's not the case in romance novels, but. I just feel like in a lot of literature I read, it's very rare that you don't that you see somebody walk away from a job that was service, mm-hmm. and it it's coded as a happy ending, like this one did. Right. I kind of wish that like what she'd been pursuing had been like so, like she was like a rocket scientist at NASA yeah. in the Bay Area, which is not happening in Montana, and she's like, I hate being a rocket scientist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I could only be it in the Bay Area or Houston, and Wynn isn't in either of those places. Right, and she, like, realizes that there's no- nothing of service, really, with being a rocket scientist. And it's just, like, again, like a a navel-gazing thing for humanity slash billionaires. And she's like, I want to return to my roots yeah. and to something created by hand. Yeah, be a part of a community somewhere. Yeah, like a Potter community. Teach a class. Similar to, like, what Cleo is doing on the land with Kimmy. Like, I feel like if it had been sold in that way, I would have felt a lot differently. But, like, she's not making the connection between a life of service and then to I am making myself all about another person and also my own need to, like, meditatively potter and nothing else. All right. I think we can transition to an IB question. You get you uh, you ready for this? I am ready. In fact, I've picked one out. Here's the question. Great. Symbols and or motifs are an essential element of many novels and short stories. How have either or both of these devices been used and, in your opinion, how successfully in a work that you have studied? Uh, We have not talked too much about the central metaphor of being a potter. Like, for me, the way that pottery usually functions in a story is it's about you taking something that is literal dirt and then making something that lasts out of it. And so it's just like act of creation, like you're Prometheus. And I don't, I don't know if it functioned that way in this one. No, I think that the way it functioned was like a self-looking ice cream cone of just like, it was something to create and destroy and to create and destroy. Like she actually worked on the same thing for like two hours. First of all, for my one pottery class, they told me not to do that and that the clay will get tired. Right. 
So, yeah. and as a pottery expert for my one class, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think the the nature of it in the book for me was like, there is no correct end product. Yeah. I think there is a question of intentionality in the art form. Maybe what it was, books was trying to communicate to us is like, Harriet becoming okay without having as much intention in what she's doing. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing because right, Harriet has like two arcs that are like a little bit diametrically opposed. One is that she's like incredibly driven towards like this one goal. Yeah. And the other is that she's long for the ride. Mm-hmm. And so pottery definitely is like, you're just like along for the ride. You're seeing where it takes you, but it's without like a destination in mind. Right. And that does seem the way that she deals with pottery is that it like she lets the clay take her when she's got her one class, um, which she's obviously not going to be able to put anything in the kiln. It seems like she just sits down and like lets the clay, like she doesn't sit down and says, I'm going to make a ball today. She lets whatever's going to happen to her happen to her. Right. And so there is an idea about her being more intentional with her life based on her authentic desire for something and then stepping down at the wheel and pursuing like whatever that might be at that moment. So that's, yeah, that could be how the metaphor works in this in this one. Her relationship with pottery reflects where she is at the end of the book, where it's just like she's seeing where it, where it takes her. Instead of like coming in with a predisposed, like this is what it has to be. It has to be a bowl. It has to be a surgeon. We're just going to like go along for the ride. It's an interesting contrast to two other things that come up in the book. One is when they all set secret goals for the week. Mm-hmm. But they refuse to tell everyone, (laughs) which again, like, how are you going to achieve your goals if you're not telling people? Like, I think that there's something that's important about goal setting here (laughs) that is naming things. And I think it also speaks to, like, why I find that, like, return to nature and, like, the handmade thing of Wynne and Harriet very different than what I find with, like, Cleo and Kimmy starting like a sustainable farm with a very active CSA. <laughs> yeah, that that seems like they were meaningfully entering a community. Right. Not just like making tables for the bourgeoisie. Right. Or like right like what what community is is Harriet joining? It's just I'm joining this family that I wish that I was part of. Yeah. Which is fine, totally fine, yeah. but it's she's becoming part of someone else. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like she is the one in control of the clay to a certain yeah. extent. It's like that she is still the clay. Right. And she's just following along. And to be fair, the pieces that she makes are for people or are memorials to people. So there is like an abstract community building element to her pottery. But not as much as Cleo and Kimmy's farm. No. I also, I completely missed the clue that Cleo was pregnant by the fact that she was wearing a bra. <laughs> They're like, since when does Cleo need to wear a bra? <laughs> it's because her boobs are bigger because she has a baby in her. Yeah, that was a fun scene when Sabrina finds that out and everybody flips out. Yeah. That was probably a fun scene to write. Yeah. All right, let's think about what we're going to read for next time. I mean, did we like this brief detour from like urban life into (laughs) the wilderness? I think I know where this is going. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Let's, Let's go with yeah. You got one that has some like surviving the outdoors? Possibly we can return to our YA roots in this return to nature. Well, there is this book that we saw online that is called Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute by Talia Hibbert. Good title. It's a great title. Unfairly cute cover as well Mm. about two teens who are like totally different than each other. But then guess what? 
they get to like become teammates in the wilderness to fall in love with each other. This one sounds fun, and it, it doesn't. It sounds like a really fun YA, and we haven't done a really fun YA in a while. We've been doing the uh, like adult beach read type books. Yeah, let's leave the beach. Let's go into the forest. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I don't like camping. I but... mean, I also don't like camping. <laughs> Let's go into the outdoors anyway. Let's do it. Yeah, this is the safest way for you and me to go into the outdoors without yeah. like being very upset. Perfect. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we picked a great book that we'll be able to read with everyone next month. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute by Talia Hibbert. See you then. See you then. Dude, the thing about pottery is uh, my entire body hurts. (laughs) It's a full body workout. I feel so sore.